Dear God, before we engage your message this morning, I want to lift up a couple of specific people. First, I want to pray for Judge Gloria Peters Mitchell, a municipal court judge. I want to just ask clearly if she's not a, a worshiper of you that she would be. Uh, we recognize, as I hope she does, as we hope she does, that she was appointed by your design and that she was placed in that position. And Lord, we pray that she'll be used for your glory in this uh, in the court system, that she will be um, a steward of justice and um, righteousness. Lord, whatever way we may pray for her or encourage her, I pray that you'll give us insight into that. But right now, we just pray for her heart and pray that it's fueled by worship. Lord, also, I want to pray for another pastor in this community and another church. We want to pray for Kavanaugh Methodist this morning and for Stephen Cotton. Lord, I pray for Stephen as a, another pastor, just knowing how easy it is for this work to become a J-O-B, how easy it would be to get up and just tell some funny stories or some sentimental, tear-jerking emails or something that just mail them in and just to get it done week by week. We pray for Stephen. I pray for Stephen as another pastor, and we pray for Stephen as a church, we pray that he will stand and deliver, that he will expose truth week by week, that he'll not approach your word topically, searching for biblical evidence for a point he wants to make, but that his points will be derived from the exposition of the Scripture. Lord, we pray that this church, Kavanaugh Methodist, will be grown in the faith, will be a city on a hill, will be a bright and shining light, we pray that collectively, corporately as a church, and we pray that for the individuals of the church and for the families and for Stephen and his family. Pray that you'll use them and spend them for your own glory. In these next few minutes, Lord, as far as this people go, Lord, I pray for a divine attentiveness. I pray for an engagement that will shape our view of the world. I pray that paradigms necessary paradigms, or I guess functional paradigms will be destroyed and that they'll be rebuilt as biblical paradigms that are based on truth. We turn this time over to you and pray that you'll be glorified in it. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Turn to Psalm number 22. It may be my deficiency, or it may be ours, I'm not sure, because I don't know where everybody stands, but I will confess that it's my deficiency at times where I'm reading and studying Hebrews, and I'm finding these references that the Hebrews preacher uses, what we've called satellites, and I find them, I find them in place, and I don't really know what they mean. So I have a difficult time getting the point of the Hebrews preacher without going and understanding what they mean. See, the Hebrews preacher does something that I did for eight years in the book of John. For those of you who are here and knew, were part of that journey, you know that we sort of had a um, routine. As we move through the narratives of the book of John, in order to interpret the narratives, in order to understand what we're seeing, what's being said, what's being done, we went to other passages in God's Word, and we had a term for them. We called them satellites. 
And the more satellites that you gathered, the more robust the reading on where you stood. Some of you may remember that illustration, that analogy. Well, the Hebrews preacher confirms that that's a pretty good way to preach because he does the same thing. So in some ways, we're climbing into his sermon and we have to climb into his satellites as they mean as they have a meaning in and of themselves. And this morning, I planned on preaching Hebrews chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, and realized we can't do that yet. Because I realized we haven't climbed into his satellite. We did this with Psalm 2, we did it with Psalm 110, and we've done it also on Christmas morning with Psalm 8. And the time that we invested in Psalm 8 on Christmas morning really exploded, I don't know, (laughs) amplified the next three sermons on January 1st, January 9th, whatever, seven days later, 8th. I don't remember what those days were. But they made sense because we took a moment to stop down and see what Psalm 8 meant. So today we're going to stop down and see what Psalm 22 would have meant to the Hellenistic Jew as he's reading Hebrews 2. I'm not going to expose specifically what's being said in Hebrews 2 yet because I want us to get the point of what's being said in Psalm 22. So in some ways, I'm sort of setting up like an alley-oop for next week. It's going to be a truth wallop next week based on the time that we spend. You notice my basketball terms. Those of you who know such, I'm such a sports fan. My, my alley-oop, wallop, I don't know where that comes from, but... Next week's going to be a wallop based on the time that we spend today. I found this quote from Doug Wilson. Doug Wilson is a guy that I have been reading some lately. I went to a conference a couple weeks ago and heard him speak. And some of you may recognize his name. He was part of a documentary. um, It's called Collision from 2009. Uh, I've got my Netflix video. You can get this in Netflix and... I think I probably have the only copy. I don't know if there are other copies, so you may have to wait till we return it to get it, but then we can all take turns. He basically, it's a documentary, and I'll read the cover to you. It's not a plug for him, but I want you to know who this guy is. In this weighty documentary, filmmaker, so whoever, pits atheist author Christopher Hitchens against evangelical pastor Doug Wilson in a debate on the merits of Christianity and whether religion is any good for the world and its inhabitants. I haven't watched this yet, but I suspect it's going to be key. I suspect it's going to be pretty awesome. Now, I did hear that Christopher Hitchens, who's now met the maker that he said didn't exist, he's, he's died, he's dead now, From what I understand, he said of Doug Wilson, I'm not hearing the typical arguments from this guy. I'm hearing ones that are making some sense, and I'm not hearing the typical lame arguments. So this is, I think, is going to be a pretty important documentary. But this guy, Doug Wilson, man, I'm enjoying him so much because he is, what I've been reading from him, what I've heard from him, in some ways has connected so many dots where we are in Hebrews. Some of you who do homeschooling may be familiar with Veritas Press, um, the Omnibus. Doug Wilson has a significant contribution to the development of the Omnibus. The guy is so, uh, he's a prolific writer. He's got a a blog that's called Blog and May Blog, which I just think is really funny. He's got a good sense of humor too. If you've read Revelation or other prophetic, not prophetic, um, 
apocalyptic literature, you know about Gog and Magog. This guy's funny, though. Here's what he said. That's a long intro. You may think I am, maybe I am plugging him. I don't know. Here's a quote from Doug Wilson. Far too many New Testament Christians think that the New Testament is a course that has no prerequisites. When in fact, jumping in the New Testament studies without Old Testament grounding is like going straight from kindergarten to graduate physics. Either the student will be overwhelmed or he will be extraordinary, extraordinarily diligent and hardworking, making sense out of it by himself, but with the result being an exotic creation of his own. <laughs> I just love that. Because I, mean, I think it characterizes a lot of us, maybe, maybe many of us extraordinarily diligent to unpack the New Testament, but without a good grounding and understanding what's being said in the old, it's hard to make sense of it. We could have an exotic creation of our own. So today we're going to spend a Sunday in kindergarten, and next week, next week we'll get back to graduate physics. Okay? So Psalm number 22. What I'm going to do is I'm going to unpack this in two chunks. I'm going to read the first chunk, and then we're going to unpack it. And then I'm going to read the second half and unpack it. And I want you to notice as I read these halves that they are very, very different. The tone, the disposition, everything that's being said. The first part, listen as I read, has the tone of anguish, suffering, and lament. Also notice, it's going to be familiar to you as well. Also notice that the first part uses a lot of I's and me's and my's and mine. The psalmist, likely David, is in a severe trial and he is surrounded, you're going to hear this over the course of the morning, surrounded by malice. Surrounded by malice. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groanings? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel, and you our fathers trusted. They trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued, and you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I'm a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind, despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, and there's none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me, like a ravening and roaring lion. I'm poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax, it's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. 
O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. Deliver my soul from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. Now, I'm going to unpack this first half of this psalm just a few verses at a time with just a few notes here and there. I want us to slow down and really climb into what's being communicated in the first half. My God, my God, again, pay attention to me, to me and my. Why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh, my God, I cry by day, but you don't answer, and by night, but I find no rest. Something you're going to see as this psalm unpacks is you're going to see this thing that goes back and forth. I, me, my, and then you, yet you, but you. But I, me, my, yet you, but you, yet you. Back and forth, I, me, and my suffering, yet you are God. I cry by day, yet you do not answer. Here's the next, yet you in verse 3. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. Watch this contrast that unfolds now. This contrast that says, I'm suffering and alone, yet you helped my fathers. In you are our fathers trusted. They trusted you and you delivered them. To you they cried and they were rescued. In you they trusted and they were not put to shame. But I, contextually you could insert, on the other hand, must be a worm. You helped my fathers. You heard from my fathers, and they heard from you, and they saw your deliverance. But I, apparently, am a worm and not a man. Scorned by mankind. Despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me. They wag their heads. And with a tone of derision, he trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him, for he delights in him. This psalmist is going through a very public suffering. He is in the public square. And others are apparently mocking his trust in the Lord as either a farce. He doesn't really trust the Lord. So we're going to wag our heads at him. Are they mocking him because they believe that God doesn't really love him because he wouldn't be going through this if he did? This is a contemporary teaching that is just plain false. You can hear it in many churches. You can hear it on TV. People that teach this thought that suffering is a result of faithlessness or an absence of God's love. Now, there is a distinct reality that if you do something foolish and you send yourself headlong into sin, you will suffer, and that's just stupid suffering. But there is very real suffering that faithful, righteous people can experience and, in fact, will experience, and in many cases, for your righteousness. Yet they're wagging their heads and mocking him And that message was as foolish then as it is now. God must not love you if you're going through this suffering. That's baloney. Come back to our next passage in verse 9. Yet you are he who took me from my womb. 
You made me trust you at my mother's breast. On you I was cast from my birth, and from my mother's womb you've been my God. Basically, he's saying, I'm suffering, and others are making fun of me and making mouths at me and wagging their heads. But this I know, I know you are sovereign. I don't know a whole lot right now, but I know that you've been mine since, watch, you made me trust you as an infant. It appears that this psalmist, likely David, is a Calvinist. Crazy, isn't it? You made me trust you. I'm putting it on you, God. I don't understand a whole lot right now, but I trust you, and I trust that you did this, that you cared for Israel, and you cared for me, and though I don't hear from you now, I trust you are on your throne, that you know all things, that your perfect will will not be thwarted, period. Man, I'm confused, but this I know. You are sovereign. You've made me trust you. And here's his first of two really sweet, heartbreaking almost, please. This first one's a little lighter than the next one. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there's none to help. Now he's going to present three metaphors of those who are coming after him. Three images. Watch for him. Oxen or bulls, lions, and dogs. Many bulls encompass me. Strong bulls of Bashan surround me. Now, Bashan was proverbial in that day for a rich, lush place. Bashan then is the current Golan Heights. And this place is where livestock grew fat and sleek due to consistent rainfall and good crops. The bulls of Bashan would have conjured up images of the strongest, the fattest, and the healthiest of beasts. They're strong and they're surrounding him. Also, Bashan was proverbial for pride because it's not a place that had to depend on rainfall, that had to depend on God to provide rainfall because it was just always there. They're swimming in produce, they're swimming in nutrients. Sounds a lot like now, like where we live. Maybe we live in Bashan. The bulls of Bashan are proverbial, too, for pride and self-reliance. And these guys are the ones that are surrounding him. Verse 13, they open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. Here's the second metaphor of the enemy, and it's a lion with mouths open and hungry and teeth bared, ready to devour him. And then you get a little snapshot of how the psalmist is feeling in the next couple of verses. It's a snapshot that could describe many of you that I've heard from you on many different occasions. Some of you who struggle often with depression. Some of you who have go, gone through these bouts or are going through these bouts are times where you're just hopeless and broken. Listen to this. I'm poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. This is the imagery of being completely and totally spent. His bones aren't even working. 
There's no structure to even stand erect in facing these problems and trials that he's facing. The psalmist is melted like liquid, yet at the same time, he's dried up like a potsherd. A potsherd is all these archaeological sites that you may have read about or you might see in the news sometimes. They're littered with these broken pots, clay pots, and these little shards are called potsherds. And they're dry and brittle and broken and useless. And he says, that's the way I feel. I can't even face life. I can't even stand erect. I can't even absorb some of these difficulties. I can't cope with these difficulties I'm facing right now. And then the third metaphor of the enemy is the dog. Dogs in this context aren't like our best friends that we've laid to rest like the ones that we pet and teach to sit. Dogs in this context were scavengers, and they likely traveled in packs like wolves. Listen to what he says. Dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They've pierced my hands and my feet. The pierced hands and feet in this psalm, of course, our minds go somewhere else, but in this psalm, are like the hands and feet of those who are having to defend themselves against a pack of canine. You know what canine teeth do to the hands and feet? And your hands and feet are all you have to defend yourself. It's like the psalmist is sitting on his backside, just kicking and screaming and fighting off hordes of dogs. His hands and his feet are ravaged. He says, I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. The psalmist here is speaking figuratively like he is just completely dead. Like they're going to divide the spoils of his garments as he's stripped naked and dead. The impression here is that the clothing of the dying or the clothing of the suffering was almost like a trophy, almost like a scalp. I got his shirt. I got his tunic. Now, this is the strong appeal in the next verse. Verse 19. But you, O Lord, do not be far off. O you, my help, come quickly to my aid. This word here, Lord, is the word, God's name, Yahweh. But you, Yahweh, do what your name implies. His name means I am. It means I'm there. It means I'm present. Do what your name implies. Be present while I'm surrounded by the bulls, while I'm surrounded by the lions, and surrounded by the dogs. Be present. Just show up. The second part of that verse, O you, my help, that word there, my help, is also translated in some versions as my strength. And it's like he's giving him a name. Be present, Yahweh. Be present. Strength. I'm ripped to shreds in this situation. I'm calling you by name, appealing to you by what your name means and what you stand for. And I'm calling to you, and I'm calling you my strength while I'm still in the mess. Notice that. He's not been liberated from the mess yet. He's calling him his strength while he's still in the mess. And in the next two verses, he, in reverse order, unfolds those that are coming after him. Deliver my soul from the sword, Yahweh, strength, 
My precious life from the power of the dog. Save me from the mouth of the lion. You've rescued me from the horns of the wild oxen. That's the bulls of Bashan. Now, the psalm changes tone here. And I'm going to read the second half of the psalm and then we're going to unpack it. I want you to listen as it goes from anguish, lament, and suffering to joy and praise and victory. And notice, too, that he's not so alone anymore. Notice who's with him. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, glorify him and stand in awe of him. All you offspring of Israel, for he's not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. The afflicted or the poor shall eat and be satisfied. Those who seek him shall praise the Lord. May your hearts live forever. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to a people yet unborn that he has done it. You heard eyes and me's and minds almost exclusively in the first half of this psalm, but in this second half you hear community and you hear the brethren, you hear the congregation, you hear the people of God as the context. There's no way of knowing the amount of time this passed between the first half of this psalm and the second half, but it appears that in God's time, God delivered the psalmist. Verse 22, I will tell of your name. You remember the names he just called him, Yahweh and strength. I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will praise you. He's gone from suffering in isolation to praising in public and community. You who fear the Lord, praise him. All you offspring of Jacob, Glorify him. Stand in awe of him, all you offspring of Israel. The taunts of the mockers have been drowned out by the praises of God's people. I want you to hear that again. The taunts of the mockers, of those wagging their heads, have been drowned out by the praises of God's people. I don't know if you realize that, this, but that's what this is to be every time we gather on Sunday. When Clint or Aaron or Mark or whoever, Corey, when the guys are standing up here and leading us in song, that's what we're doing. We're drowning out the voices of the mockers in praise and things that are true. That's the way I want you to consider our praise and song. It's drowning out the sufferings. As we are 
loud and strong in proclaiming. Those who fear the Lord, we are praising him. Those who are the offspring of Jacob, we are glorifying him. Those who are the offspring of Israel, we are standing in awe of him. We do that week by week. We're not just singing some songs. It serves a purpose. We're drowning out the voice of the mockers. We're drowning out the sufferings. Man, the things that we do on Sunday morning are more real and more true than the taunts of the bulls and the lions and the dogs. Do you hear that? The things that we say back to God that are true, the things that we say to each other that are true about God, they are more real and more true than whatever we might hear from the bulls and the lions and the dogs. That's what this is each week. It's not singing some songs, man. It is praising him. It's glorifying him. It's standing in all of him, singing true things to God about God, drowning out the mockers. Verse 24, for he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted, for he has not hidden his face from him, but has heard when he cried to him. Now, I don't know if you've noticed here, but the voice changes. The voice so far in this psalm has been first person. I, me, my, speaking of God, will be second person. But here he moves to third person because he's not singing this. Guess who's singing this? The congregation is singing. The afflicted is showing up among the congregation. He's been delivered by God, and the congregation is singing. They're singing. Sure enough, he has not despised or abhorred the affliction of the afflicted. He has not hidden his face from him, the psalmist. He has not hidden his face from him, but he has heard when he cried to him. Man, the reality is when we're walking together, there are no solos. It's the people of God singing together. And while one may suffer especially, we all are singing about God's deliverance. And all chiming in and all joining in. And now the voice moves back to the voice of the psalmist in verse 25. From you comes my praise in the great congregation. My vows, pay attention to this, I will perform before those who fear him. My vows I will perform before those who fear him. In verse 26, the afflicted are the poor shall eat and be satisfied. That's connected to his vow. Those who seek him shall praise him. May your hearts live forever. This word here, afflicted, means poor. And what he's saying here is that they're going to eat as the psalmist fulfills his vows Specifically, what's being talked about here is what's called a votive offering. Where the psalmist who had been previously suffering now brings an offering to the temple or tabernacle. But it's not just between him and God. He brings an offering that's so ample that it's going to feed the poor and needy. The poor and needy can come to the temple or tabernacle and they can eat the spoils of God's deliverance of this suffering psalmist. Just like I'm saying, our songs that we have each week are connected to these sort of truths. Our tithes and offerings each week are connected to these sort of truths. When we're going to pass this offering plate later, or this offering satchel, I forget what we call them. Think of it that way. 
I'm not just checking my block. I'm bringing my ample votive offering that's spilling and gushing over to the needy. Those needy might be in our church. They might not be. But I'm not sharpening my pencil to see how little I can give because it's ample. I'm fulfilling my vows to a God who has delivered me. Who has delivered me from the bulls and the lions and the dogs. That's the disposition of our giving each week. It's not to check a block. It's a votive offering meant to spill over on the hungry and the needy. It's a communal meal that feeds and nourishes the physical body as God has nourished and sustained the psalmist. I see these sort of truths and I frankly can't figure out why someone wouldn't give. I'm thinking, have you never seen Yahweh in action in your whole life? Have you never seen strength in action? Has he never delivered you from anything? If he hasn't, then don't bring an offering. Maybe you ought to be on the receiving end of the votive the rest of us bring. But man, if you've been swimming in his strength and swimming in his blessing and swimming in Yahweh being present in your life and you don't bring the offering with that disposition, then you need to be convicted of that and repent from that. It's the appropriate response. Man, I can think of all the weird things that can come in people's minds when they're thinking about people pushing for an offering. I'm just saying, man, it's an appropriate response to worship. (laughs) We're not pushing anything. Man, I'm pushing for you to be blessed, though. I'm pushing for you to step out in response to Yahweh showing up and being present in your life. I want you to consider, too, these references to the congregation up to this point in verse 23 those who fear the lord also in verse 23 those who stand in awe of him and then in verse 26 those who seek him shall praise him the congregation here is rejoicing with the psalmist this is going to be part of that wallop for next week that i want you to have a mental note about right now or a written note if you make notes in your bible or you make notes in your little notebook The psalmist here and those singing with the psalmist is an indication of corporate solidarity. That's going to be key next week. Corporate solidarity. Because next week we'll see who the psalmist is foreshadowing. Now, verse 27 and 28. What I feel like is really in some ways the high watermark of this psalm. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. And all the families of the nations shall worship before you. I want you to notice that the psalmist isn't just about him and the brotherhood. The psalmist, as he suffered, and as the psalmist has been delivered, he has a view to the nations, to the families of the nations, to those even outside of the congregation who will in the future be part of the congregation. All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord. All the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship, watch, belongs to the Lord. And he, watch, rules over the nations. Now, I'm going to give you just a brief connection to the Hebrews context. We're going to spend more time on this next week. The Hebrews were hunkering down behind locked doors. The Hebrews preacher is basically saying, unlock your door and get out and walk in this truth. In Rome, 
Yes, in Rome where Granny is serving as a human torch in Nero's garden. Yes, that's what I mean. Unlock your door and get outside of your door. For he rules over the nation. Kingship belongs to the Lord. Sometimes we read a passage like that and we say, yeah, someday. Yeah, when he returns. <laughs> Between now and then, we're just hunkering down and surviving. We read a passage like this, and we have got to make the connection to passages that we've studied in the last few weeks. After making purification for sins, what did he do? He sat down at the right hand of majesty on high. He wasn't sitting down to take a break. He didn't sit down. Scott and I were talking about this week. The redemptive plan didn't, he didn't push this imaginary pause button on the redemptive plan so he could take a little breather. The picture of him seated is because he is seated and ruling now. When he ascended to the Father's right hand, it wasn't for recess. When he ascended to the Father's right hand, the Father said, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Father said, crown him with glory and honor, placing everything in subjection under his feet. What I want you to see is that that happened at the cross. It's not some imaginary possibility in the future that we just kind of hope and pine for. It is a reality now. As we read these words, kingship belongs to the Lord. He rules over the nations. We have to ask the question, do we really believe that? Or are we just thinking maybe someday in the future? Do we really believe that he rules and reigns right now? The Hebrews preacher said we don't yet see all things in subjection to him, but we do see him crowned with glory and honor. What do you think that means? It means he rules and reigns now. If you don't get anything this morning, I hope you get that. The, the song that's been in my head all morning, and in eight years I've never put in a plug for Mercy Me that I know of. They know that. Our church family that's part of the band knows that. And that's not out of spite. It's just because I've been careful for their sake and for ours. But the song that I can't get out of my head is You Reign. Over and over again. And hearing Bart belt it out, man, that's the appropriate voice behind that. You Reign, Dad Gummit. You Reign. Not Rome, not Nero, not the bulls, not the lions, not the dogs. You Reign. You're seated and in session now. And the reason I'm emphasizing this is because the way we live so often lives like he doesn't. We live like he's dead and still in the tomb. We wouldn't say that, but functionally, functionally so often we live all beat down and oh, he can't possibly deal with this. We have nothing to deal with this. I'm just empty-handed. And I'm thinking, what about the gospel? <laughs> You've got the goods. You've got the thing that he left, the final words that he gave us, go ye therefore. You've got that cultural mandate to subdue the earth. I'm reading Hebrews now with a new set of eyes. I'm reading this sort of psalm with a new set of eyes. I'm saying, man, we're walking in his reign now. He's seated and in session now. That's got to have a show. That's got to have a tell in the way we live our lives. 
The families of the nations are called to worship him now. That's not just a future possibility. That is a current reality. The families of the nations are called to worship him now. If he rules over the nations, we should step a little more boldly. If he rules over the nations and he is in fact seated and in session, then we should step a little more boldly. There are times where it's so easy to say while well, I'm sitting in, in safe Greenville. There are times where speaking with folks who are serving in different contexts, often in different dangerous contexts where there's almost, almost the thought that we want to be incognito. We want to be under the radar. And I'm sitting looking at passages like this and going, what? Do you want to be under the radar at L3? Do you want to be covert in Greenville? Living under the radar and covert is to say that he's not seated in in session and that he doesn't reign. And in fact, Nero reigns. That's what the Hebrews are doing. We got to be incognito. Lock the door. I don't want to be a human torch. Well, no, you don't. Of course you don't. But you've been called to suffer with him. This has got to inform the way we do missions. It's got to inform our disposition in Greenville. We're not hunkering down behind locked doors, trying to play safe. We're not trying to go unnoticed or under the radar. Incognito, that's the word that I keep thinking of, incognito. We have the unique, unique benefit over the world that our Lord is alive and that he is I shared with you, kind of introduced you to Doug Wilson. One of the things that I enjoyed from him in this conference I went to recently, his first, he had three lectures, his first lecture. He kind of, I don't know if it, you know, sometimes you can tell when it's not in somebody's notes. He kind of looked up from his notes and he said, you know, this is so good. And it's just connected with Hebrews. He said, a lot of times the way we treat the world or we treat a situation is we treat it like they've got our mojo. We treat the 800-pound gorilla business or whatever, or we treat our finances, or we treat our health, or, you know, we treat circumstances. They, they've got our mojo. Not realizing that our Lord is the one that's seated in in session. It's our Lord that reigns. We have the mojo. Thinking about that should give us a little bit of a different disposition in the way we engage our neighbors, our friends, our workmates, Greenville, other foreign places where we have a footprint, we have people afield. We should have a different disposition realizing that we have the mojo, not you. Muslims, there's a million, kajillion, billion of you around here and you could all cut my head off. But guess what? My Lord reigns. Your God is dead. I have the mojo, not you. I'm not going to give it to you. What it should do for us, it should give us sort of a holy and humble swagger. Say, my God reigns. My God lives. I'm seeing him seated in his session. Now, I'm seeing Psalm 22 
lived out. Now, here's something that's interesting about Psalm 22. I found this. Um, I, I'm looking for the direct evidence, but I found one commentator that indicated that early church uh, tradition held that when Jesus was on the cross, that he was quoting Psalm 22 all the way through Psalm 31, verse 5. Psalm 31, 5 is, into your hands I commit my spirit. That he's on the cross quoting these psalms. Go read those psalms thinking like that, and they will come to life. But I'm sitting here thinking, him quoting those psalms would be very appropriate because the first half of Psalm 22 and the second half are being accomplished right then and there. He ends the psalm with, he did it. How do you think he did it? He did it on the cross. That's got to inform and fuel the way we operate. We often live like the world has our mojo and we pine for Christ to come back thinking, man, things will be straight and reconciled then and then I can step out boldly. But we're called to step out boldly now. I'm thinking about Paul. Man, if Paul is the example, then you got to say that Paul believed that his Lord was seated and in session. I was looking through Acts this morning, and I was looking at some of these little just glimpses of Paul. If Paul's an example for us, not just for missionaries, but for all of us, everything he did was in the public square. (laughs) And he was beaten. He was imprisoned. He's shipwrecked, all these other things. And I'm seeing this guy living, though, like his Lord reigns. I'm seeing him living boldly. Here's just some snapshots. You don't have to turn there. Acts 13. On the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. The synagogue's not a good place to go if you're going to fly under the radar. But he goes into the center of Jewish thought and sits down, and then he stands up motioning with his hand, and then he preaches. He steps right into the fray. He's like David and Goliath. Dude, you can't change all their minds. You can't transform all those people. You're talking about the institution. They're going to kill you. Or they're going to kick you out of the country. And that happens over and over again in the book of Acts. Verse 44, the next chapter. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. Public square. A few verses later, the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. You know what? We could do with some people getting fired for their faith. You ever heard anybody here in our context getting fired because they love Jesus? I'm not saying go get fired, but I'm saying love Jesus enough to where maybe your job is on the bubble. (laughs) We've made a God of your job. We wouldn't want you to lose your job. Man, I care about your job, but you got the people of God to care for you. If your faith is in question, or you're, whether you can worship God or not, whether you can walk with the people of God, or you lose your job, lose your job, dadgummit. Let the people of God care for you. Isn't the gospel worth that? Be salty and bright and step out in that context like your Lord is seated and in session. They don't have your mojo. You've got the mojo. Man, it's just riddled 
Acts is riddled. The Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, having persuaded the crowds. They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. There are some schools of thought that if they didn't know who Paul was and they didn't see the names that were attached to it, they said, that guy's reckless. His work was reckless. He got kicked out of the country. He didn't do a very good job flying under the radar. And I'm saying, I'm looking at it and saying, no, he's, he's serving like his Lord is actually seated in his session. He's, seating like, he's serving like his Lord actually reigns. Chapter 16, he's in Thyatira at this point. And verse 17, she followed Paul and us crying out. There's this woman following Paul. And look at what she's saying. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Just imagine you're walking around some town and some woman's following you for days. Shouting. These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And Paul, having become greatly annoyed. <laughs> he's made the same stuff we are. Turned and said to the Spirit. I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her, and it came out of her that very hour. And her owners saw that their hope of gain was gone. Apparently, she was sort of like a sideshow. So they seized Paul and Silas, and they dragged them into the marketplace. There it is again, public square before the rulers. The magistrates tore the garments off them and gave orders to beat them with rods. Later, they're thrown into jail. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and prisoners were listening to them. And suddenly, there was a great earthquake, so that the foundation of the prison were shaken. You know the story. The doors were open, and everyone's bonds were unfastened. Later, he's in Thessalonica. He's in Berea. He's in the Areopagus in Athens. He's in Corinth. He's in Antioch. He's in Ephesus. And it's all public. There's a riot in Ephesus. Then he's in Macedonia and he's in Greece. It just goes on and on. He's arrested in the temple then. Everybody's saying, you better not go back to Jerusalem. You're going to die. He goes to Jerusalem anyway. And you know why he goes to Jerusalem? Because he actually believes that his Lord reigns. He actually believes. No, he's seated in his session now. It's not a future possibility. He actually is seated and in session now. And then here's some crazy stuff that goes on. Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, and he said to the tribune, he speaks to the tribune, speaking truth and gospel into the tribune, that if he had hunkered down and flown under the radar, he would have never spoken to the tribune. Later, he goes on to speak to Felix. The next chapter, or later on in the chapter, He's speaking before the Roman tribune. And here's how it hits them. Just in case you're thinking that things are just going to go great if you go and do this. Up to this word, they listened to them. He's been preaching to them. And then they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he should not be allowed to live. Uh-oh. And as they were shouting and throwing off their cloaks and fleeing dust into the air, didn't really sit well with them. The tribune offered him to be brought into the barracks, saying that he should be examined by flogging. Later, he goes before the chief priests and the council. Later, he goes to see Felix, the governor. And then eventually, he's appealing to Caesar. He said, I want to see the emperor. He's not flying under the radar because he's serving. His ministry reflects the reality that his Lord is seated in his session. That his Lord reigns. He wants to see the emperor to say, emperor, let me tell you about who's seated in his session. Think of that beauty. Emperor of the Roman Empire, while you are seated on your golden throne, let me tell you about who's seated and in 
session. I'll tell you right now, this will transform the way you think and the way you operate. The reality is Muslims think a whole lot more like this than a lot of Christians do. They go to transform whole countries. They start schools. They bring business. They influence leaders. And the reality is their God is dead. They don't have the mojo. We have the mojo, but functionally, and nobody would say this, functionally though, we often treat things like, oh, we couldn't possibly impact our community in that way. Functionally, the way it plays out is God is dead. He's not seated in in session. He's squarely in that tomb. Functionally, that's the way it plays out. Well, I know nobody would say that. That's what it looks like. We are called to walk in this reality. We're called to step out with a holy and humble swagger, wielding a life-altering gospel. <laughs> that's all we got? Yeah, that's all we got. But that's not all. I mean, that's, that's big. That if you believe that your marriage can be rescued by the gospel, then you're acting like he's seated in a session. If you believe that a community can be transformed to be a city on a hill, then you're acting like he's seated in a session. If you believe your relationships, your family, your parenting, all those things can be redeemed and transformed by the gospel, then you're acting like he's seated and in session. You're singing by your life at the top of your lungs with Bart Millard, you reign. When you have areas of your life that you say, oh, God, God can't impact that. Somebody else has your mojo, you're saying, no, he doesn't reign. He doesn't reign there. You remember we learned in Hebrews that he is placing all things in subjection under his feet via the gospel. That situation where you're in, where all things don't yet appear to be placed under his feet, that disparity that we've preached about recently, that is an opportunity for you to step out as if your God is seated and in session, as if he in fact reigns. And that may be the, the thing that God uses to place that event or that community or that business or that relationship under his feet. Man, I know I've spent a long time on this, but I don't know that I couldn't spend more. <laughs> Do you live like he reigns? Do you step out with a, I'm not talking about being brash, I'm talking about being bold. Do you step out with a bold, holy and humble swagger? Realizing, man, he loves seeing David's face Goliath. Because who gets the glory then? He does. I, I just can't imagine that he's not enjoying a little old church in Greenville, Texas, dreaming big. And thinking about how we can make much of Jesus and how the gospel can bring righteousness, how we can be ambassadors of peace in the workplace, in our community, in our neighborhoods, in our families, that we can actually treat our physical surroundings and context like the gospel is the remedy. I can't imagine that he's not happy about that. How that plays out, I don't know. It's a new thought for me too. <laughs> I hope you're not thinking I got a plan up here. I got no plan. We just got it. We just got the Hebrews too. You got to give us some time. But we got to start with the right disposition. 
The disposition's got to send us in the right trajectory. We're at least heading off in the right direction. And I trust he's going to be a lamp unto our feet as we step off and take these little tiny steps in dreaming big and pining for his glory now, not just when he returns, knowing that he's seated in a session now. Let me finish up the psalm. I got on a, that's not a tangent because that's the, really the meat, of the meat of the message. Verse 29, all the prosperous of the earth eat and worship. Before him shall bow all who go down to the dust, even the one who could not keep himself alive. Posterity shall serve him. It shall be told, to the, told of the Lord to the coming generation. They shall come and proclaim his righteousness to all or to a people yet unborn that he has done it. That he has done it for the psalmist was God delivered him. But for us, looking through the lens of Hebrews that we're really going to bring into focus next week, he's accomplished this. He has done it through the cross. That was realized through the cross. Now, a brief application. The impotence of malice. Remember, early on in the sermon, I said that this psalmist was surrounded by malice. But what I hope you have seen unfold in this psalm is that malice, when God is involved and the gospel is involved, is impotent. What seems like a loss, what seems like defeat, is not when Yahweh and strength is involved. Wicked men, bulls, lions, and dogs think they're Lord of the earth, but we know different. A great example. Listen to this example. You don't even need to turn here. Just listen. John chapter 11. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Tattletales. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said... What are we to do? Hey, with your eyes, you're looking at this and you're saying, these guys are in charge. They're lords of this situation. Everything's looking, pointing toward that. The chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, what are we to do for this man performs many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, I like this. This makes me laugh. Caiaphas, who was high priest this year, that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. I'm just envisioning this guy with his big hat and his big robe. He's looking like he is the man to save the day. Counsel, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it's better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. Now, I enjoy how John wrote this next verse. He did not say this of his own accord. He thought he was Lord over this, but turns out, being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. They're thinking they're lords over this situation, but guess what? We know otherwise. John knew otherwise. John could have inserted there, but our God is seated in his session. 
Caiaphas looks like he's in charge, but he's not. Malice is impotent. The reality is, these guys nailed Jesus to the tree and they accomplished the salvation of the world through it. Do you see the beauty in that? If you step out like your Lord is actually seated in in session and you get hammered for it. Reading passages like this should give you hope in knowing that may be the actual vehicle that God uses to further the kingdom in that context. But if you say, oh no, i got to fly under the radar. I don't want to make anybody mad. I wouldn't want to offend anybody. And you aren't bold. I'm not talking brash. If you aren't bold with a life-altering message, man, it's not going to change. It's not going to be influenced. They nailed Jesus to the tree and accomplished the salvation of the world. We know better. Whatever our circumstances may tell us, we know better. He's seated in his session. Hear it right now. You reign. The last thing, considering this psalm should be illuminating, but I'm leaving it on purpose a little bit blurry because it's going to come into real focus next week. It's going to come into focus through the lens of Hebrews. I want it to be a little bit blurry. It's probably going to be the next two weeks that it'll come into focus, but I think especially next week, It will come into focus and it will begin to make more sense. But I want you to know that the early church, when they read Psalm 22, it actually became part of their early church liturgy that they're singing because it was such a profound teaching in that sermon or in that psalm. Suffering looks like all is lost. God, where'd you go? Salvation of the world. In the same psalm. The early church saw that psalm as accomplished and earned and realized in the cross. When the early church read these words, he has done it, they would have thought of the cross and the resurrection. They would have said, yep, he did it. He did it. Man. I have no idea if any of this made any sense to y'all. I hope it made some sense. I hope it did. And maybe one of those kind of things that we just process and chew on for the next few Sundays. But my goodness, I'm telling you, this is some paradigm-destroying sort of realities. We can live like a bunch of slaves being freed. We can live like a bunch of beat down people just pining for Jesus to come back, hoping we can hang in there. Or we can step out with a godly, humble, holy swagger knowing that our God reigns. He reigns over this situation. It's going to change the way you are used in that situation. Hear me. That's how you're going to be bright in that situation. That's how you're going to be salty in that situation. We're living in the age of his rule right now. He is in the process of placing all things in subjection under his feet right now. I believe what Hebrews 2 has said. I believe it. Do you? 
Man, if we believe it, then we need to live like it. We need to wield that gospel and subdue the earth. I'm going to shift gears to the supper. What I would hope for in this meal, I'm going to move right on to the next psalm, and I'm going to read it as if Jesus is on the cross. I'm imagining in my mind that he's on the cross quoting this psalm. Again, we can't bank on that early church indications that that may have been true, that he read these psalms through. But just hear Psalm 23 in light of where we've gone this morning and hear the wonderful connection to this meal. Listen to this. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. Can you imagine him saying that while he's like this? It would look almost like one of you in the midst of your trial saying, I trust him. He's seated in his session. I trust him right now. It doesn't look like I'm winning. It doesn't look like he's winning, but I trust him. He makes me lie down in green pastures. Can you imagine what the mockers are saying as they wag their heads? <laughs> doesn't look like green pastures to me. It looks like a big hunk of wood. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me. He just confirmed that in the last half of that last song. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. What table do you think he's talking about? Lunch? He's talking about this worship meal. You prepare a table for me, a feast with my God, with the victor, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Man, let's eat. Let's eat enjoying this meal as a meal of victory, maybe even in the presence of enemies. For some of you, likely in the presence of enemies. And it doesn't have to be even a person. It can be a medical diagnosis. It can be this overwhelming depression that you deal with every single day. He prepares a table for you in the presence of your enemies. Man, let's eat racing to this table. I'm going to ask you to do this too. As you prepare to eat, ask forgiveness if you've been living like the gospel isn't powerful. Ask forgiveness if you've been living like he's not seated and in session. I mean that. Ask forgiveness if you have some area in your life that you have given the mojo over. My boss has my mojo on that issue. <laughs> my job has my mojo on that issue. The doctor has my mojo on that issue. I, I can't give that to God. I can't entrust that to God. I'm asking you as you race to this supper to ask forgiveness if you've been still living like you're a slave. 
And I ask you as you take this supper to enjoy that he has done it. Enjoy that he reigns now, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, because of the thing that we remember each week right here. Let's take the supper with this on our minds and hearts. It's expensive to worship in the public square. You need to know that. This is a weekly reminder of the expense. His body was broken because he took it to the public square. It's expensive to step out like he reigns in all places as men of sincerity speaking in Christ in all places. It's going to cost you as it costs him. This is to be a reminder and it's to be a celebration of the victory that he earned for us. Let's take and eat. Let's take this together enjoying the blood that was spilled for us. Take and drink. Let's continue in song and worship and giving. Let me pray for the spirit of our giving. That it's in keeping with what we just considered. <clears throat> Lord, I, uh, I know how easy it is for giving and things like that to get distorted. And I ask that you undistort that, that you give some clarity to our people this morning. That we can just have a real biblical and true understanding of what this votive offering looks like. That we're bringing ample above and beyond for others that don't have ample or above and beyond. And that we are meeting needs and potentially being poised to meet needs within our body and outside of our body. I think of the testimony it must be to the lost to see a church that's meeting each other's needs. We're really, if there's a financial need in our body, then others are helping them, tending to it. I pray that that will be a testimony of witness in this community. And I pray also, Lord, as we considered our deacons last week, that you will give us opportunity to engage needs in our community with the votive, ample, lavish offerings that are given each week. I'm so thankful that we have this facility. I'm so thankful that for the most part, it's behind us. I'm thankful that we can really turn and engage our context, that we can be very intentional about being, about saying more than be warm and well-fed to Greenville, to our other ministries and other places on the far corners of the field, that we can be intentional about engaging those works. Lord, I pray the spirit of that will be fueled by what is taking place here in these next couple of minutes. Hearts of worship that have seen and enjoyed and realized Yahweh God, our strength, delivering us, taking us from the first half of the psalm to the second half. I pray the spirit of our giving will be a mindset that says, yep, you did it. I pray too that our song in worship that will just be a song that's drowning out the noise of the mockers and the scoffers and those who will be likely slandering or disparaging, being hurtful in some way if we are to step out as if our Lord reigns. I pray that we can rush to this song each week, that we can rush to this context and we can sing with, our, with everything in us.
the top of our lungs, that you do indeed reign. We see Christ seated. We see him in session now. We see all things placed under his feet and in the process of being placed under his feet via the gospel. And we see ourselves as stewards with that journey. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.